Amen. Well, I hope and pray you've been utilizing these red uh, 12th man towels as we handed them out last week. We may still have some today if you didn't get one. But I want to show you how one of our uh, church members used these, uh, this towel. We've got a picture here of uh, Jaden uh, Wilson at his football game. See it hanging off his belt? That's what I'm talking about. Man, take these towels and use them. Tag us on social media. Let us know how you're using them as we want the whole city of Chattanooga to know God has made some major promises to us that we need to hear and that we need to heed from the 12 minor prophets. So we are studying uh, the 12 minor prophets. Today, we're going to be in Joel, okay? You might need some help finding Joel, so let me help you out. Joel is next to Hosea. Good luck finding it. All right. Joel, second week in our 12-week series uh, called the 12th man, the 12 minor prophets. Now, why are they minor? I don't want to go to a minor league game if I can go to a major league game. So why are we in the minor prophets? We can be in the major prophets. You know, we, we think like that. We, we, we um, label some things as major. If it's important to me, it may not be important to you. It may be minor to you. Maybe major to me, and what's major to you, maybe minor to me. When I was on sabbatical, I would get up and write. So I would, I'd get up, I'd go upstairs, and I'd write. Well, one morning I got up, I kind of tossed my phone on the bed and went up to write. And after a few hours of writing, I said, I'm, you know, we can't do without these little devices, can we? I, I had to find it. So I said, well, let me go look for it. So I went downstairs, looked in the bedroom, bathroom, living room, kitchen, closets, upstairs, downstairs, high, low, every crook and cranny, couldn't find it. Couldn't find it anywhere. And then I remember who I live with. I live with the most awesome, wonderful woman on planet Earth. I'd argue any of you husbands on that point. She is wonderful. She is incredible. I love her more today than I ever have. Who I love that woman. Tanya, she's right over there. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. And so I, I remember, you know, I, Tanya is... I tell you what, she keeps the cleanest house on planet Earth. You can come to our house any day, anytime, and it's spotless. If you, if you have a drinking glass in your hand and you set it down on a countertop or table and you take your hand off of the glass, I mean, if you take it in 2.8 seconds, we're talking about Olympic time, that glass will be emptied in the sink and in the dishwasher. It's fascinating to watch. It happens just like that. So I thought, okay, where could my phone be? I said, I know I've looked everywhere, I can't find it. Then it hit me. Oh, let me go back and check in the bedroom. So I went in the bedroom, I put my hand on the bed that was made up, and I felt it under the covers. So she made the bed up with my phone in the bed. And I felt it under the bedspread, but I needed an eyewitness, so I called Brady, our middle schooler, to come down. I said, Brady, I want you to come in here. I lost my phone, I told her all about it. I said, look, put your hand there, tell me what that is. She said, well, it feels like a phone. I said, yeah. So she reached in there and grabbed me and said, that's your phone. I said, great. When mom gets home, we're going to tell her that my phone that was once lost now has been found. We're going to celebrate. This is major. I found the phone. I mean, yes, this is going to be exciting. Tanya's going to be excited. So she gets home and we tell her what happened and we're just waiting for her to say, wow, and yay, and great. And without hesitation, her response was this. Did y'all mess up the made-up bed? And she walked into the bedroom, and she made up the messed up, made up bed. What was major to me, finding my phone, was not major to her. Uh, what was major to her, making up the messed up, made up bed, was certainly not major to me. So when we get to the prophets, it's not that one is major and one is minor because of their significance or importance. No, the, Joel and 
Jonah and Hosea, they're minor because they're short. Jeremiah and Isaiah are major because they're long. That's the only difference. None is more important than the other or more significant than the other. So today we're in Joel, the second of the 12 minor prophets we're going to study. And today we're going to study on this Lord's Day, we're going to consider the day of the Lord. Somebody say the day of the Lord. Say it like you mean it. Day of the Lord. Okay, that's the theme of Joel. You just told me the theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. In fact, five times in three chapters, the day of the Lord is highlighted. Chapter 1, verse 15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Somebody say near. near. Not far, but near. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, we are told that the day of the Lord is near. Specifically, the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Not far, but near. And then you jump over to chapter 3, over and around verse, verse uh, 15. Let's see, verse 14. For the day of the Lord is Near, not far, but near. So chapter 1, the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 3, the day of the Lord is even near. So here's our truth, and I want you to take home with you today. I call it the takeaway, and it reads this way. The day of the Lord is nearer today than any other day. And any other day in human history, August 25th, 2019, we are closer to the day of the Lord today than any human has ever been in the history of mankind. Today. The day of the Lord is nearer than any other day. Any other day. Today, right now. Now tomorrow, when you wake up, it won't be tomorrow. What will it be? Today. <laughs> yesterday never gets here. Or yesterday's gone. Tomorrow never gets here. It's always today. So today, right now, in this moment, the day of the Lord is nearer than any other day. The theme of Joel is the day of the Lord. And Joel breaks it up in his day in a preview of what's to come in our day, and then what's to come in the future, okay? So let's not get, we're going to take this one step at a time. It's simple to follow, I promise you. But I want to share with you four ways that we can live for that day, the day of the Lord today. What can we do today in light of the Lord's coming? Number one, we need to wake up. Verse five, the Bible says, awake, you drunkards, wake up. So let's see how God lays this out. Joel chapter one the word of the Lord came to Joel. This is wake up while you still can. That's, that's the message of chapter 1. And so the, the word of the Lord came to Joel. This is not the word of Joel. This is not the word of some other prophet. This is God giving his word to Joel. The prophecy here is from God, not from Joel. If you got that, say, I got that. This is the inspired word of the living God. Joel did not take a patchwork of other prophecies. He didn't go to Twitter and get a bunch of tweets from celebrity pastors and put them all together and, and give this book. He did not do that. This is a word from God. This is hot from the heart of God right here. This is the word of God. And what do we know about Joel? You know what we know about Joel? We know his name and we know his father's name. That's all we know. Joel, the son of Bethuel. Well, we don't know anything else. We don't know if Joel had a family. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know who the king was during his time. We don't know if he liked uh, blueberries on his peanut butter sandwich. We don't know anything about Joel. We know absolutely nothing about Joel. And that's okay because the book of Joel is not about Joel. <laughs> it's pointing us to salvation refuge in the Lord. 
That's what this is all about. Judgment and salvation. And how the two coincide with one another. How they intersect one another and where our true refuge is found. So we don't know much about Joel. We can probably say that this Joel is not an ancestor of Joel Osteen because their messages are quite different. Uh, You're going to see that today. I mean, this book is heavy. It's dramatic. It's solemn in some parts. Think about it like this. The book of Joel is not like the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians has been referred to as the Hobby Lobby book of the Bible. That you go to Hobby Lobby and you see verses from Philippians printed on everything that you can hang in your home and display in your home. You you don't want to display the book of Joel in your home. It's not a Hobby Lobby book of the Bible. There may be one, maybe two verses from Joel that you could display in your home, but not very many. Uh, So Joel says, hear this. And here it's very strange and odd what's happening in chapter 1. You almost want to think that, man, this seems like a theme for the season 4 of Stranger Things. I mean, this is strange and this is odd what is happening in chapter 1. Look at it right here. It's an invasion of locusts of all things. Look at it. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What are they telling them? Here it is, verse 4. How odd is this? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. These are four invasions of locusts, one after the other, almost rolling on top of each other. One after the other, after the other, after the other. This is judgment upon the people of God who have turned their back on the Lord. And God is judging them through what we might call a natural disaster. We might label that as a natural disaster. This thing that happens as a result of the fall of sin, even creation is affected by the fall. We are all affected by the fall. The fall affects us all. It affects creation, it affects the beast, it affects the weather, it affects you, it affects me, it affects your marriage, it affects your relationships, it affects everybody. In any way, in every way, the fall affects us. Now, just so you'll know that this is actually something that really does happen, I've got a few pictures of some locust invasions. Here is in Argentina, 2016, where uh, $22 billion worth of damage was done by an invasion of locusts. Here's another picture of them swarming over a village. Uh, Here's another picture of one trying to navigate through a swarm of locusts. And here's what was left behind, just devastation. 2004, Morocco, West Africa, a a swarm of locusts, two football fields wide, 149 miles long, 69 billion locusts destroyed Morocco. One, One farmer said it this way, the locusts ate everything except my mortgage. They destroyed everything. Total destruction is the picture here in chapter 1. And so in, 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 in response to this, I want you to see what Joel says that we should all do. And the easiest way I can say it is like we can get caught up in all this poetic uh, language that, that Joel uses. But here's what he's saying. We need to do the opposite of what we're currently doing. How we respond to natural disasters, how we respond to terrorist attacks, how we respond to these little judgments, little, little to us, but how do we respond to those? By doing the opposite of what we normally do. 
This is what Joel, look, in other words, Joel is saying this should make a drastic impact on you and should cause you to change dramatically. Because look at what he says in verse 5. Awake you drunkards. Now drunks are going to be passed out of sleep. He says, no, don't sleep. Wake up. He says again, those who drink wine, you need to wail. People who drink wine, as they're drinking it, they are merry. Right? No, no, no. You wail. You don't be merry. Keep reading here. Jump down to verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. In other words, you need to wail and weep and lament as a bride-to-be would do if her fiancé died before the wedding. Don't celebrate, mourn, lament, wail. How about the priest in verse 9? You are to mourn the minister of the Lord. Why? Because the locusts ate the grain. The locusts have eaten Everything. There's no sacrifices they can bring to the house of the Lord because the locusts ate it all. Judgment destroyed it all. So they're to mourn. Jump down to verse 11. The tillers, the farmers of the soil, they're to be ashamed. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Farmers who are proud of what they do, they stick to it and do their work, but now they're ashamed because there's nothing to farm. There's no crops. It's all been destroyed. So they're to do the opposite of what they normally do. And the highlight of this is in verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Now priest wore priestly garments, very expensive, purposeful garments. But no, not now. Judgments come. Take those off and put on sackcloth. Do the opposite of what you normally do. Do the opposite. Put on sackcloth. Go in, pass the night in sack. Oh, ministers of, of my God. Verse 13, chapter 1. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld. Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Listen, Southern Baptists, we don't consecrate a fast. We consecrate a feast. Right? We're to do the opposite. Don't eat. Fast. Do the opposite. When this judgment comes... You are to do the opposite of what you normally do. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land and the house of your God. Cry out to the Lord. Call a solemn assembly. Verse 15. Alas for the day. Here's the point of chapter 1. For the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now as mighty as these little judgments might be, this hurricane, that earthquake, this natural disaster, that natural disaster, as, 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 as mighty as we think those are, they pale in comparison on what's coming. The destruction and judgment from the Almighty. It's not mighty, it's almighty. It doesn't, what we experience today, it's like if Joel was talking to us in our day, he might say it like this. Hurricane Katrina, the largest hurricane in the Gulf. Uh, Hurricane Katrina is like a blip on the radar. It's like a drizzle, a summer shower compared to what's coming. Okay, that may communicate with us better. All these natural disasters that are disasters. I mean, I'm not making light of them. They're awful. They're terrible. They're destructive and they're devastating. They don't hold a candle to what is coming. The destruction from the Almighty. And so what do we do? Look at verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call. See, Joel doesn't say, y'all need to call on him. (laughs) Y'all need to repent. Joel says, I'm including myself. Lord, I call on you. No one's exempt. Not the priests, not the prophets, not the people, not even the Chick-fil-A cows. Look at verse 18. Look at this. 
how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. There's no more pasture for the Chick-fil-A cows. So even they turn to the Lord and call out to the Lord and repent to the Lord. Everybody is affected by this judgment, the sin, the fall of man. This is what happens. This is the result of the fall. This is the result of sin separates us from God. That's what it does. And so they've been separated and they're told to call out to the Lord. Call on him. Here's the point of chapter 1. Let me ask it this way. What is our typical first response when a natural disaster happens? When a terrorist attack happens? When a mass shooting happens? And they're all terrible. And they're awful. And they're evil. I get all of that. And after the initial shock, what is our response? You know what we do? We, 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 we get all up in arms debating whether or not we should bear arms or not. We get in discussion about gun control. We fall into debating climate change. We fall into debating this and debating that. And the Lord is saying this. Don't, your first response needs to be to call on the Lord. That should be your first response. You, some of you who were alive then or old enough to remember then, the September 11th terrorist attack, I think people flocked to churches more so than they would today. Why? Because we're all about debating today rather than calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what Joel is saying. Our first response needs to be to call on Him. We imagine that all the things that happen, that all the bad things that happen, it's a result of God being displeased with us. And so He's punishing us. That's not Joel's perspective. Joel's perspective is not to stand up and preach that Hurricane Katrina is judgment on New Orleans because of homosexuality. That is not what Joel is saying. Joel is saying that these natural disasters, that these terrorist attacks, that they may be judgments to us. We may view them as little judgments, but in from Joel's perspective, they are big mercies. God is being merciful. He, Joel is a warning system. God is trying to get our attention. He's trying to warn us of what is coming. It's mercy. It's not judgment. Joel's perspective blows our mind. How can this be? Well, let's see. Flip on over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 takes a different shift at the beginning of chapter 2 we have a different look now chapter 1 ends with a warning sign hey call on the Lord judgment has come you know there was a girl in Thailand who warned her family about a tsunami that was coming she learned in her geography class that when the water bubbles up and the water recedes back from the shore not toward the shore that means a tsunami's coming so she warned her family her family warned other families and the only beach that was saved from that tsunami was the beach that little girl was on because she warned them, they heard the warning, they heeded the warning. Joel is warning us. His book is a warning system. See, there are places in the world when disasters strike, they have no warning system. They have no way to be warned that a tsunami's coming. So Joel is our warning system. Wake up, church. Wake up. Judgment's coming. Here's a second way that we can live for that day to day. Not only wake up, we need to work out our own salvation. Work out our own salvation. You find that all over the New Testament. Grow up in your faith. Get off milk, get on meat. Grow up. Work out your salvation. Grow up. Say that all over the place. Chapter 2, here's how Joel says it to us. Now this is in Joel's day. There's another invasion. It's not locusts this time. It's an army. 
chapter 2. In fact, this army reminds me, if you've ever read the Tolkien novels, it reminds me of uh, the armies of Mordor. Just listen to how brutal uh, this, this, this is. Listen to this. Chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming and is near. Day of darkness and gloom, dark clouds, thick darkness, like blackness that is spread over the mountains. Great and powerful people. This is an army. They're like it's never been before, nor will ever be again. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Watch this, verse 3. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. This is almost like a, a return to the fall. Listen to this. The Garden of Eden is before them, but then when they pass through, what is it? A desolate wilderness. That is what the fall, that's what sin did to the Garden of Eden. That's what sin has done in your heart and my heart. And nothing escapes them, Joel says. Then look at verse 4. Here's a real good picture of this army. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses, they run as with rumbling of chariots. They leap on the top of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle, before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their past. I mean, they're focused, laser focused on the judgment. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons. They are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And look at verse 11. This is what is so shocking. The Lord utters his voice before his army. That brutal army is the Lord's army. That's God's army. See, God used Israel's enemies to judge Israel. God uses evil to judge evil. This this army is the Lord's army. And listen to what it says right here at the end of 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer is no one. No one outside of relationship with Christ can endure this army. No one outside of the refuge of the Lord can escape this judgment. So what do we do? That's pretty, that's, you don't want to hang that in your house, do you? You don't want to display that in the wall of your home. So what can we do? Is there anything that can be done? Is there any hope? Well, look at verse 12. Yet even now, and from 12 to the end of the chapter is a great picture on how you and I are to work out our salvation. Look at this. Yet even now. That's the but God of the uh, New Testament. Even now is the is, is, is the but God of the Old Testament. You find but God all over the New Testament, but here's the Old Testament version. But God, God has done something. There's something that's been done. There's hope for us, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, stop being religious and start repenting. And, and, and how can we do that? I mean, is God, he's, he's obviously, it's his army He's attacking us. It's his army. He's judging us. What are we going to do? How, how can we, if we return, what, what is he going to do? Well, I love this. I, this is so fascinating to me in verse 13. Look at it. Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? What church? What is he? Gracious and what? Now, if you read chapter 2, you would think that should read he is grievous and wrathful. Wouldn't you? But he's not grievous and he's not wrathful. (laughs) He's gracious and he's merciful. Wait a minute. You mean these little judgments are actually God's mercy? Yes! He's trying to get your attention. 
Listen, not only that, he's slow to anger. Not quick to anger. That's not our God. Our God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast. See, God is not, God's love is not a what have you done for me lately kind of love. It's a steadfast love. Gracious, merciful, steadfast in love. Slow to anger. And he relents over disaster. In fact, look at verse 14. Who knows whether or not he'll turn and relent. He does that in the book of Jonah. We're going to get to Jonah and when King Nineveh says, hey, who knows? God may relent and the king repented. And even in Jonah, even the Chick-fil-A cows repented and God relented. He relented. This is who our God is. This is who our God is. He wants you. He doesn't need us, but he he wants you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your religiosity. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants that. And and as you work out your salvation, you've got to arrive at that. You've got to arrive at the place where you understand it's not what comes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. That's what you have to get to as the heart is rended here. Think, Think about it this way. Rend your hearts. We think about King David, right? And this is part of you working out your own salvation. King David, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man after Bathsheba. He wanted her, he took her. He sinned against God. He committed adultery. Now we might ask, well, why did David do that? Well, I know he was tempted. He was tempted by his, his own flesh. He was tempted by the world, tempted by the enemy. And he gave into that temptation and he sinned. And that may be very well true. But David doesn't say that. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. David says, the reason I committed adultery is because I'd already committed adultery in my heart. That's why Jesus said, if you're angry at your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. If you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's what comes out of a man, not into a man that makes him... Unclean. That's what God is saying. Don't rend your garments. Don't be religious and, 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 and on the outside. I, I want your heart. I want you to rend your heart. That's, that's why they said when Peter preached this in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when he preached Joel 2, 28 through 32, and they said, what must we do? They were, their hearts were cut to the quick. They said, what must we do? Rend your hearts. Think about it this way. I've got a little bottle of water here. If I shake this bottle, what's going to happen? What do y'all think is going to happen? Oh, water came out, right? Why did the water come out? Because why? Not a rhetorical question. Why did the water come out? Took the top off and shook it, right? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And so think about this for a second. If you do have another bottle take the top off, there's no water in it, and you shake it, is water going to come out? I can shake this all day, is water going to come out? Why why isn't water coming out? I shook that one and water came out. Why isn't water coming out? No water in it, right? It's empty, no water. So here's what happens when you're tempted. When we we hold on, uh, when we're devoted and have affection toward things other than Christ, that is called sin, and when we compile that in our hearts, and when temptation comes and we're under pressure and we're shaken up, and what's going to come out of our heart? Whatever's in there. Well, what's in there? Am I filled with the Holy Spirit today? Nope. I'm, I'm filled with the flesh today. What's going to come out? Sin's going to come out. So rend your heart means every day you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got to empty. Give me a clean heart, O oh God. Empty what's in me. Give me your spirit. This is a part of you working out your salvation. Rend your hearts. 
You got it, church? And here's the good news. The good news is you're not supposed to do it alone. Look at verse 15 in chapter 2. You're not supposed to do this alone. It says very clearly that we're to blow the trumpet in Zion. We're to consecrate a fast. We're to gather the people together. That's what this is. This is a gathering of people. We need each other. This church needs you, and you need this church. We have to do this together. You were not created to be a follower of Christ alone. You were created to work out your salvation with a group of believers who are also working out their salvation. And even the bridegroom is to leave his room. And the bride, her chamber, no one is to be exempt. No one is to be left out. No one is above Working out your salvation. And then look at verse 18. Man, this is fascinating. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. I'm telling you, he wants you. He's not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. He wants you. And he shows pity to us, he says. And the Lord answered his people. The only unanswered prayers, you work out your salvation, the only unanswered prayers are unasked prayers. If you ask, God will answer. He may not answer the way you want or when you want. But he always hears and he always answers. Look at verse 19. Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil. Now remember before, there was no more grain, no more wine, no more oil. You remember that? It was gone. No grain means no bread. No wine means no drink. No oil means no essential oils. Tanya just, Tanya just flinched over there. But here's the good news. The essential oils are back. The grain's back. The wine's back. It's back. God is restoring what has been taken. And then look at verse 20. I'll remove the northern or far from you. <laughs> One pastor said that this is a southerner's favorite verse in all the Bible. I'll remove the northern or far from you. That's not what that means. It means there'll be no more threats to you. No more armies will invade you. The threats are gone. Everything's being restored. Look at verse 25. This may be the only verse in Joel you would display in your home. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. That may be the only one. Some of you, like me, came to faith maybe later in life. I was 21. I wasn't very young. I wasn't very old. But I came to faith in Christ at 21 years of age. And there are times when the enemy will whisper in my ear, look at you, you are a failure. Look at all those years you wasted not following Christ. In fact, I didn't really start surrendering or answering the call that God placed on my life till I was 27, 28, 29. I wasted all those years, wasted them. But here God says he's going to restore every single one of them. Every one of them is going to be restored. Don't you let the enemy lie to you and say, oh, you've blown it, you're no good, you wasted all that time. Uh-uh. God says he's going to restore it in Jesus' name. This is part of you working out your salvation. We need to work it out. Work out your salvation. Number three is walk in the Spirit. This is a very short passage here in Joel chapter 2, 28. Uh, this is walk in the Spirit. And it shall come to pass afterward. Now Peter preached in the last days, this same text. Why? Because Peter understood what Joel said would happen afterward was happening in Peter's day. And he said, okay, this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's best sermon. It was his first sermon, so I feel bad for him <laughs> that it got worse from there. <laughs> But this was his best. It was Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved. The Holy Spirit was poured out on sons, daughters, old men, young men, female, male, slaves, free. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody can be saved. Anybody who calls upon the Lord. Everybody who calls upon the Lord can and will be saved. 
Now we must walk in the Spirit as believers. God did not pour out His Spirit for you to be pitiful in spirit and for you to walk around pouting in the Spirit. That's not why He poured it out. He poured out His Spirit so you can be empowered by the Spirit. Thursday morning, I was leading a workout called F3. First time to lead it. I was excited about it. Got my workout together. On the way to the warm-up, I was leading the guys to the warm-up. I stepped on a rock and rolled my ankle. The staff, um, we got a great staff. Y'all know it? They're so caring and kind. They were so concerned about my ankle that they put a walker in my office. Isn't that kind? I rolled my ankle before the the warm-up. So I had to lead a 45-minute workout with a... I mean, my ankle was killing me. But you know what kicked in? Adrenaline kicked in. And that adrenaline just took the pain away. I didn't feel that ankle until we were finished. And then I really felt it. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is our helper. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to stumble. You're going to hit a stumbling block. You're going to fall. But the Holy Spirit is our helper. And He's going to empower us to press on and keep going. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it possible? Absolutely. For you to walk in the Spirit. And then number four we got to hurry here, the end of Joel. Joel chapter 3. Let me just break this down very simply. The first part of chapter 3 is judgment. All the way through verse 15 is just judgment. Verse uh, 17 through the end is salvation. In other words, the worst is yet to come. You think it's bad now. You think life stinks now. It's just going to get a whole lot worse before it ever gets better. But I can also tell you this, the best is yet to come. (laughs) The best is yet to come. I want to show you all this real quickly. Uh, Chapter 3, look at verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of judgment. Jehoshaphat is a valley of judgment. How do I know that? Keep reading and I'll enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they've scattered them among the nations and divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and drunk it. So here's the last way that we can live for that day today. We need to wait, weightily, that means burden, with a heavy heart. We need to wait on the Lord, but also expectantly and eagerly we need to wait on the Lord. And so, he's going to come, he's going to avenge his people. You're not to do that, God is going to do that. And he does that from verse 4. He says, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Jump down to verse 9. This is a picture of what's going to happen at the battle of Armageddon. The armies are going to get ready for the final judgment. That's what God is saying to them. Proclaim this among all the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, verse 9. Beat your your farm tools into weapons. That's what that's saying. Get ready for battle. Hasten and come. Bring down your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of judgment. For there I will sit to judge. You've seen those movies where everybody's getting ready for battle. The Avenger movies and other movies. And the music changes and it gets real intense. And there's this great build up to this climatic scene of this battle. And then so we read here in Joel 3 about this battle and the climax. And everybody's getting ready. And then you get to verse 12 and there's no battle at all. It's just 
the Lord Jesus sitting in judgment. See, the battle of Armageddon, spoiler alert, is no battle at all. God's going to speak and all will be wiped away. Judgment will fall. And then look at verse 14 in chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That is the valley of judgment, meaning the only decision that will be made will be made by the Lord. The day of decision is right now, not then. Then it's too late to make a decision for Christ. Today is the day of decision. That's the judgment. And then lastly, here's the salvation. Look at verse 18 in chapter 3. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. You know what? That's a picture of satisfaction. We're going to be satisfied in heaven. There's not one dissatisfied person in heaven. I, so I was having a conversation with someone the other day. Said someone asked him about being bored in heaven. Is heaven going to be boring? Isn't it going to be boring after a while? I mean, after 10 million years, isn't it going to be boring? Do the same old thing all the time? Do you know why we're bored on this earth? Do you know why you and I move from, uh, from major to major in college or from college to college or from job to job or from, uh, from hobby to hobby or from this device to that device? I've got to get the updated version, from jump from house to house. Do you know why? We're so bored and we do those things. It's because we're dissatisfied. We can't be satisfied fully in this life. Now, yes, Jesus fully satisfies, but we're still in this flesh. So we're, we're never fully satisfied until we get to heaven. So the reason you're bored is you're not satisfied. And the reason in heaven there's no boredom is everybody's satisfied. Everybody's satisfied. There's no dissatisfied person in heaven. So heaven's going to be a place of no locust, no threats, no war, no pain, no crying, no boredom. Complete and utter satisfaction all the time. Last thing I want to show you in the book of Joel before we give a time of invitation. I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 15. So chapter 2, verse 10. This is judgment in Joel's day, okay? In chapter 2, verse 10. This is judgment that happened in the day of Joel, in his day. And in that day when judgment came, I want you to look what the Bible says in verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdrew their shining. That's what happened as a result of judgment. Now look at chapter 3, verse 15. This is judgment in the future. The same thing happens. Look, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. So judgment in the past, in Joel's day, you had this sun darkening, stars stop shining. In the future, the sun will be darkened, the stars will stop shining in judgment. But there was another place of judgment where it became dark. The earth shook. It was at the cross. <laughs> it was at the cross. And on that cross, we sung about it a minute ago, the red letters about stretching his arms out where we should have been. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, God the Creator, who came to live perfectly without sin, who was tempted in every way as King David and you and me, yet he didn't sin. He was without it. And he willingly, willingly went to the cross to pay your penalty and mine. 
They spat on him, sure. They scourged him. Yes, they nailed nails in his hands. Absolutely. They pinned him to a cross and his blood soaked the cross. Absolutely. But can you imagine God the Father taking all of his wrath and dumping it on his son and the judgment that he took for us? See, here's the good news from Joel. Jesus, the Lord, which we take refuge in, Joel says. He is our refuge. So Jesus, the one who Peter preached in Acts 2 and said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Joel, shall be saved. And then Peter tells him who the Lord is. It's the one you crucified. It's the one who's been resurrected. It's Jesus of Nazareth. So this Lord who died and was buried and was raised to life, the good news is that Jesus has removed judgment from us by taking judgment for us. That's good news, church. I know Joel is heavy. I know it's a lot to take in, but aren't we so grateful that as the day of the Lord draws nearer and nearer and nearer, that today you and I can draw nearer, nearer, nearer to our precious Lord. Isn't that good news? So if you're a believer today, let me encourage you. You have nothing to fear. If you're in Christ, you have no reason to fear. If you've turned from your sin and put your faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone, you have nothing to fear. Fear not, Jesus said. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys. I hold the keys of of death and Hades. Fear not. You have nothing to fear. Heaven is a place that we, we just can't even fathom. We can't fathom it. We can't fathom our refuge that we have in Christ, even for some of us right now. So believer, you need to rend your heart. You need to walk in the Spirit. You need to work out your salvation. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I've never put my faith in Christ, we're, we're, we, we do something here after every service. We want to give an opportunity for you to respond. This is called an invitation. We're going to have some ministers up front here, and you can stand up and come to one of them and say, hey, I need to make this decision. I want to put my faith in Christ today, or I have some questions about putting my faith in Christ today, or I want to, I want to follow through with believer's baptism. I was saved at this age, but I've never been baptized. I've got my baptism on the wrong side of my salvation. I was baptized at VBS, but then I got saved later, and now I want to be baptized. Maybe you want to be a part of this church and join our church here. Whatever decision you need to make, today is the day of decision. Please don't get to the place in Joel chapter 3 verse 14 where it says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That means they have no more decision making. This is the same text that Jesus, same idea Jesus refers to in the text when he says that many will go down the wide road that leads to death and destruction. Only few find the road that leads to life, the narrow road. So find that narrow road today. We're friends here. We love you. We're going to stand in a moment. You're going to respond.